Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Insight Podcast. I'm Jamie Lusader, and my co-host, as always, is Jamal Boyce. In today's episode, we're going to chat with Vince Butler, CTO of Romoland K-8 District. We're going to learn about his experience leading in a smaller school district and some of those challenges and opportunities. So welcome, Vince. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. I'm very lucky and pleased to be here. So before we dive into our questions, I want to learn a little bit more about you. I'm going to present a series of either or questions and we'll get to know each other and perhaps some of our quirks. So up first, breakfast burrito or an omelet? You know, I've really been on an omelet kick lately. I've actually been trying to learn how to make my own omelets and stuff even, which is, you know, I've never been much of a cook. So um, it's been an experience. So I'll, I'll go with omelet. Awesome. Jamal, what about you? If I'm trying to get full, typically a breakfast burrito hits the spot for basically breakfast and lunch. But if it's something like an omelet, would suffice. That's great. Yeah, I'm I'm all over the breakfast burrito. We have some really good spots here in Pasadena. Shout out to Lucky Boy breakfast burritos. They're pretty <laughs> incredible. Yeah, but they are an all-day burrito. Yeah. You, just, you, you start them and you just keep them with you the rest of the day. Exactly. I feel like that would be a great name for a restaurant or a little fast food place or something all day burrito like it tells you everything you need to know about what you're getting yeah <laughs> when i was teaching we would sometimes do parties for the kids and i would offer breakfast burritos as the you know end of the year party option after they finish their final and i went to lucky boy one time and i had to take a dolly to get the wow. the 90 burritos uh, so all day burrito it is it's great thank you up next, Excel or Sheets, Vince? Oh, Sheets, 100%. We're a very googly district here, so <laughs> I forced myself to transition to Sheets, you know, eight years ago. And if I find myself having to use Excel now, I have to search up how to do things in Google because I don't even remember anymore. So, yeah. That's great. Jamal, what about you? My response would be, what is Excel? Because we're... <laughs> we're- we're an oogly googly district as well, so Sheets is my preference as well. We might get some hate mail after this one. I'm going to say <laughs> Sheets as well. Yeah, it's. I love all the new features that are coming out, uh, the split columns being built in and all kinds of really cool innovations. It's It's been fun to see all of that come out. Trying to get my business office onto Sheets is, I'm pretty sure, a mountain I will never reach yeah, the top of. That would yeah. <laughs> I like to challenge people and say, show me what you're doing in Excel that you can't do in Sheets and see if they we can prove it because it's pretty comprehensive now. Yes. All right. Final one, Saturday or Sunday. Jamal, we'll start with you. I think I will say Saturday because it's not so close to Monday. So Saturday <laughs> is the day for me. It's- I guess I'm going to say Saturday too. I am a procrastinator. So by the time I get to Sunday, for me, that's okay. This is all the things that I had to do this weekend that I put off doing yesterday. So it's it's more work. So Saturday would be my relaxing day. I agree too. I think it's that one day that's the buffer between the week, right? You get, I can actually feel okay doing a hundred percent of nothing on a Saturday, knowing that, you know, I could catch things up on Sunday, but it is that it is that one day of the week that's a good mental break. And the farmer's market near my town. So I love that as well. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much for playing. So next we'll dive right into our questions today and I'll kick it over to Jamal and he'll tell you our opening question. Well, thanks for just coming on board to meet with or just discuss with us, Vince. But uh, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your current role and what is your professional background? So I am the chief technology officer at Romaland School District. We are a, a TK through eight district in Southern California, four elementary schools, one middle school. Uh, I've been here in the district for about eight years now, but, you know, kind of to speak to my background a little bit, I've never really not been in education. I graduated way back in 1996. And two weeks after I graduated, I was starting a job as a student worker in that same school district, um, just basically minimum wage, kind of helping out in the tech department. It was intended to just be a summer job. And I figured, hey, you know, I kind of like computers. Might be a good way for me to learn a little bit since I didn't really know what I wanted to do with myself after that. And I just ended up really enjoying the work and being able to, to visit school sites and help teachers. And I mean, obviously there wasn't a lot of computers in the classroom back then. It was really just more the administration aspects. But I just enjoyed the work so much. I talked them into letting me stay on and to continue to be a student worker as long as I was going to school. I still met the qualifications. And eventually they were able to create a entry-level tech position. And and that became my first real 
you know, kind of school district job. And so that was in Vista uh, Unified School District back in the day. Uh, go Panthers. And yeah, I've, I've just been working at school districts ever since. So I, I was there for a few years doing a variety of different roles. Uh, and then I, I moved into my next gig in Temecula as the coordinator of network services. Uh, that was my first management role. So that was a, a bit of a, a change for me because I had never seen myself as being someone who had to wear a tie and stuff. I was just kind of saw myself really being able to crawl under desks and get dirty. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I really enjoyed that that change and, and still being able to to be very tech minded, but also being able to, you know, branch out and have some more leadership kind of facing things. Um, eventually, I took a position in uh, Paris High School District as a director. But I kind of found myself in, in that role feeling a little, I don't know, unprepared. Like I had sort of fallen upwards into management. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, being in, in Paris, it was less of a hands-on role because we, you know, now I was a, a true director and I had actual staff to do the work. So I just I kind of didn't really know what to do with myself. I just didn't feel like I said prepared for that. Um, and so I found the CTO mentor program while I was working in Paris. And that really was something that kind of opened my eyes to really what management was all about in the technology realm. And it really kind of reinvigorated me and, and, and got me excited about the work that I was doing again. And then it did, the timing worked out perfectly that, that I, I was in the CTO mentor program in 2013. And like literally as I was finishing the program, I let me literally walked out of my final presentation and then found out that there was this opening in Romoland for a CTO position. And so uh, within a month, I think, of completing the program, uh, I, I had started in Romoland and was doing this new job. So wow. it was just perfect timing. That's incredible. I think so many of us that have gone through the CTO mentor program have had similar experiences where for me specifically, it was like, wow, I'm an imposter and I need to figure out yes. how I'm doing, how I'm doing this gig and what I'm supposed to be doing and what it all means. And then, yeah, then it propelled me to be able to be a CTO. Like the job was created because I had gone through the program. So I think that's a testament of the program and what we're all so excited to continue to promote about it. Agreed. Yeah. Imposter syndrome, that is a real thing for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So on the topic of your current role, tell us a little bit about the composition of your team. You mentioned you're a small district. What's your ADA? Um, I think our enrollment is around... 4,400, 4,500. I'll have to, I'd mm-hmm. have to double check. It's been pretty mm-hmm. fluid lately, but our district has been growing pretty steadily since I've been here in the district mm-hmm. for the last eight years. And, you know, we're, we're starting to burst at the seams a little bit, mm-hmm. but I've kind of like to think of our department as, as small, but mighty. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so like I said, we've got about, we'll just say 4,500 students, give or take in the district. And my department has a total of four staff to support mm-hmm. them, myself being one of them. Uh, we have someone who manages our student information systems and CalPads, and then we have two people who kind of really handle more of the, the support aspects. One being our IT technician handles the desktop support, and then we have network system specialist who's kind of our sysadmin kind of role who handles everything between what the tech does and then what, what I'm mm-hmm. able to do. So pretty lean and mean. So when did you realize you were in a small district? Because what is the definition of a small district? Mm-hmm. It's, it's that's an interesting question. I mean, if it, my understanding is that looking at it from a statewide perspective, we actually do fall into the medium-sized district category, even with as low as the number seems, because mm-hmm. there are some districts out there that are super tiny. I Googled it today just because it was like, what's a small district? There are 25 school districts with an under 18 kids. I had no 18? idea. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all relative because like, even when I came here, I was thinking I was at a decent sized district. And they're like, you came from a small. I'm like, well, we had 12,000. I, I didn't consider it small, maybe in comparison to what you're stating. So mm-hmm. it's all, I guess, the perception of the viewer. So do you feel small? Yeah, I think so. I mean, even though, like I said, statewide, we're, we're not really in that category. It, it definitely does kind of feel small in terms of the work that we're doing. You know, my I mentioned earlier kind of what my career path had been. And what's interesting is like, I've kind of been shrinking districts with every step. You know, I want to say like Temecula, we were probably in the 28,000-ish range ADA at the time when I was there. When I went to to Paris High School District, that was a a high school-only district. And I want to say we were around 11,000 students there. But being that everything was high schools, it, it kind of felt more than that in a way. So then in moving to Romaland, you know, at the time that I came here, we were at about 36, 3,700 kids. So it definitely felt like a giant 
step down in terms of the number of students I'm supporting. But then, of course, the flip side to that is there's less people to do the work and more people, you know, so the kind of number of people you're supporting kind of gets larger. So based off your trend, are you striving to be that 18 student district? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm very happy where I'm at. I guess seeing what I've seen in terms of how the workload and the expectation changes as you get to smaller districts where they have less resources, they have less staff. So everybody's expected to have a a broader range of knowledge Mm -hmm. and and things, you know, like I get a lot of very interesting other duties as I can't imagine having really tiny district, like where, you know, I might have to be tech support as well as a bus driver, as well as, you know, (laughs) working in the cafeteria. I mean, who knows what kinds of crazy tasks you'd have to do in those tiny districts. Can you just expound, I guess, just on the pros and the cons of being in a small district? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, for me, the, one of the huge advantages really is just being able to really develop personal relationships with the people that you're serving in the districts and being Mm -hmm. able to or in the schools and and being able to have a good understanding of what their their needs are. I mean, there was a time before COVID where I knew every single teacher in the district yeah. by name and by face. Like I could see them and be able to, to greet them there by name. And when I worked in my previous districts, that there was there's just no way. There were too many people and it's too too impossible to do that. Whereas here, you know, I, I can know people and be able to have conversations with them, see how things are going and really get an understanding of what their needs are. And that's something that can really help factor into the decisions that we make as a district about where we want to go. Now, obviously with COVID and a lot of people coming and going, I probably have some catching up to do and getting back to that point. But I would say that's probably the, the hugest advantage. And on top of that too, even though I mentioned, you know, kind of can be a little bit of a struggle sometime getting some of those other duties is a sign that that might be outside of the area that I would normally be responsible for. Someone in my position would normally be Mm -hmm. responsible for. It is very helpful having some understanding and a hand in other things that are happening in the district and having some involvement in that, because that can really be informing and helping us make decisions about how to proceed or kind of altering our roadmap and our plans, knowing like, oh, well, this department has this initiative or this school is doing this thing. That can really help us understand of like, oh, you know, this actually probably isn't the time for us to push for this change because we know that that's going to conflict with this. Maybe we should push that down a little bit further down the road. Uh, Whereas in a larger district, it's a lot easier for things to happen without that level of communication. And so it might be a little more easy to be surprised by things or to have projects happening in, in different departments that that can end up coming into conflict, but further down the road. So it's, it's I think, nice to have that broad view of things. The disadvantages, the biggest one is there's just lack of time. You know, yeah. there's just so much to do and we, we all have the same amount of time in the day to do it. So mm-hmm. that, that can be a challenge is just, you know, juggling the different priorities that we have and trying to get everything done in the time that we have. And even though it is also nice to have that bigger picture of what's going on in the district. Sometimes having those blurred lines and job duties can, can make it a little challenging too. Mm-hmm. You know, for as an example, with COVID happening and everything, like one of those other duties is assigned that I got was to oversee the administration of COVID testing in our district, right? Yeah. So not something that typically would fall into a technology department, Correct. you know, but we don't have a risk management department or somebody who would be able to handle that. So we're as cabinet members, we all have to pitch in, make sure that things happen. And so I, that was one of the tasks that I was given was let's get our testing process off the ground and make sure we've, we've got a process in place to get tests sent out to the school sites and replenish those and make sure people are trained on how to do it. And ultimately ended up running pretty smoothly. And, but it definitely was whenever I talked to people in other districts and I mentioned, you know, this is one of the things that I'm doing, you know, they were very surprised, like, oh my gosh, what a weird thing for someone in technology to be doing. And that's true. But hey, hashtag small district problems, right? <laughs> and I can connect because I, I had to do that as well as far as the, the management of the tracing and setting up the database and contact. But one of the things you did mention as far as just, which I do see as big, is just having those connections when you're a small district, you, you know and can relate. And I'm already, I've only been at Colton for a month and I'm like, I've met many staff, let's say a month, but I'm still meeting others. And I'm like, I still now feel like I'm neglecting even my team, the one because my team is larger. The and it's like it is difficult to just have that time dedicated to spend and just be in contact. So it's very limited when you're spread out and have a bigger role and just it's more 
entities you have to interact with now. Yeah, but I will say it is great to be able to go out to a school site and to be recognized and be able to recognize the people there and just be able to check in and say, hey, how's it going? And they feel comfortable enough with you that they can tell you the honest truth of like, oh, here, here's how it's going. This is what's working well. This is what's not working well. And whereas in, in larger districts, like people may not feel that level of comfort where they can really be truthful and honest. And I think in the technology realm, even though we strive for things to always be as perfect as we can make them, mm-hmm. you know, the reality is that that's not the case. And if you don't have people who feel that they can comfortably share those challenges with you, then we can easily fall into the trap of just assuming everything's fine because nobody's complaining when that may not be the case. That's good. So true. So on a similar topic, have you figured out any creative solutions to some of the challenges of having the same needs as bigger districts that have more resources? You know, I am a huge fan of hosted solutions. You know, that was one of the, the first things that I did when I came into this district was kind of do a, an inventory of what we had at all of our school sites, what were all the mm-hmm. resources that we had available. And, you know, we had, we had a lot of local servers that were doing various things. And over time, we have shifted everything possible into being cloud-based services, cloud-based servers, instead of having local servers to do things. Really kind of the philosophy has been, let's put our money and time into building a resilient and reliable network here at our school sites, and then put all of the services that we use into cloud-based systems and really rely on the partners that we work with to keep those things operational and make sure that they're working as intended. And then our job is not so, you know, to where we have to fix servers or have to respond to a hard drive that failed in a server. And now nobody can get to this particular application. It's like, no, let's just take all that out of the mix. All that stuff is hosted. If there's a problem, they have much smarter people than we do to Mm -hmm. fix those problems. And so we can rely on them. And let's put our efforts into making sure that our network is up to the task in providing reliable and fast access to those services. We all have those same financial resources. It's how are we choosing to spend them? And that, that has been working really well for us. You know, So instead of, like I said, spending our time having to fix stuff that breaks, it's really more focused on providing those services, spending time in making it easy to get into those services. So creating yes. integrations so that people don't have to manage passwords for 19 different things, you know, and, and just trying to really focus on making things easy to use and reliable. Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, I think I saw something similar when I started in my role. We're a tiny bit smaller than your district with kind of fluctuating between 4,000 and 4,100 students. And it was the same thing. Like, we were doing everything ourselves and it was one person, you know, we had the one guy in the chair running everything and the network just kept growing and growing and growing. And he continued to do excellent work, but at some point it's like, it's just not possible for one person to run everything. So yeah, we kind of had a similar strategy of what can we offload to vendors, but there's that challenge of when it's outside of your control and it breaks, you, you know, that that's a pain point. And you think, Oh man, if we were doing this ourselves, could we have fixed it? But but you're right. You have to let that go and you have to focus on the things that you can deliver. So I, I think that's a really, that's really good advice. I would add to like an, another thing that has been a huge game changer for me. And this was something that, that we started down this road in my previous district, but oh my God, it's, it has saved our lives here in this district is Chromebooks. Quite honestly, Chrome OS, like having an end user device that does not really break to speak of in terms of software, right? Of course, we, have physical. <laughs> we, we all have Chromebooks <laughs> that get broken. Like, yes, that's the reality. But we just don't have to deal with really the kinds of issues that we would have seen on Windows or Mac devices with just the kind of user-facing issues, like some DLL got corrupted and now Windows won't boot or the Wi-Fi connection is not working right because there's some issue with the, the 802.1x configuration on the device or the certificate not being installed properly. Like a lot of security updates coming out and working mm-hmm. everything. Those sorts of issues just don't really tend to happen on Chromebooks too much. So I think just in kind of adopting that as our standard as much as possible, all of our students are using Chromebooks. We also even have the majority of our staff now using Chrome OS devices, either in mm-hmm. um, yeah. in like support staff types of roles or our teachers. We still have some MacBooks and some Windows out there devices for people who still need them for specific tasks or people who just haven't really felt comfortable with making that transition yet. But even even using those devices for those people in those roles, like just trying to get to the point where it's like, we just want the device to work. So you don't have to worry about problems with the device. You can just focus on the, the work that you need to do with the applications and those sorts of things. And that has been a huge time saver too. 
So what are the minimum specs you're putting on Chromebooks for your staff? We look for something that would be roughly equivalent to if we were to get like an entry-level MacBook. So typically you're looking at something like an i3 or maybe an i5 processor, Mm -hmm. usually eight gigs of Mm RAM-ish to start. We've been getting touchscreen Chromebooks too. Not that there's probably a huge benefit to that for for people like teachers and stuff in the staff role, but you know, just it, it might come in handy for some things here and there. So so mm-hmm. we usually do that. Um, just again, trying to get something that that feels, even though it's not going to be as durable as what we see with a student device. And sometimes we have you know broken hardware that probably would have survived had it been something that was a little sturdier. We still want it to be something that is going to be light and and feel comfortable to use and, and kind of feel like a professional device mm-hmm. and not something that just felt like, well, we got the cheapest, heaviest, but sturdiest device that we could just because we're trying to save money. We're trying to find a balance between something that's capable, but also something that feels good to use and comfortable and light and feels like something you would want to use. Mm-hmm. Are you doing 13 inch or 14 inch for the staff? 13 inch. 13, 13 inch. inch. We did do 14 inches for a little while. And the feedback that we got was that while the larger screen was nice, the difference in weight was just not worth it. Because mm-hmm. larger screens typically come with larger batteries and mm-hmm. kind of get this domino effect on the weight. Are the teachers using a second monitor in their classrooms or just the Chromebook by itself? They weren't originally, but that was something that came about with COVID because we had everybody working from home and they were like, hey, we're staring at these tiny screens all the time mm-hmm. now. It would really be nice to get a little bit more breathing room, so to speak. So we did end up buying some, I want to say 24 inch monitors that we provided to anybody who wanted them. And and so those have come back. And so now those are Mm -hmm. in the classroom as well. So Mm -hmm. they have that, that they can connect their device to. Now I see why you're a Google Sheets type of person. (laughs) (laughs) So how is that transition then as far as, or what devices that they have prior to Chromebooks as far as your staff? Well, on the, as you would expect on the sort of administration side of things, our support staff, they were typically Windows devices. Our teachers, well, let me back up a little bit. So when I came into the district, my predecessors had kind of started a shift to Windows devices from Macs back in the day. And it wasn't something that was super well received. I think the the kind of the perception was that this is something that's being forced based on cost and not based on what we think would be the best device for us. So we spent a lot of time meeting with teachers and people in various roles to just just say, hey, what what is it that you want and why? And like I said, this was eight years ago at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at the time, almost all of our teachers were like, we we want MacBooks. MacBooks are the device that we feel the most comfortable with, that we think is going to give us the options that we want, that that's what we want to use. And so that's what we did. We made the switch. We bought MacBooks with an intention of having them for a a five-year lifespan. And, you know, at the end of that five years, we reevaluated. And what we found is that with the change that we had made to moving everything to cloud-based applications or hosted applications, everything that was being done was being done in a Chrome web browser anyway. So we, we decided to make that transition. You know, we, we definitely was a collaborative process. We, we communicated with, with our teachers and basically said, hey, you know, here's what you're doing on a Mac. Here's what we're doing on Chrome devices. You know, we got some pilot teachers to try them out and get feedback. And the feedback we got was basically, I mean, it's it's doing everything I need it to do. So we made the decision at that time, you know, let's let's just move forward with Chrome devices, but we're not forcing it. So we basically let our teachers know, hey, your devices are five years old. You're eligible for a refresh. Mm-hmm. This is what that refresh device is going to be. Mm-hmm. You let us know when you're ready. Uh, and so we've had a process every year of kind of saying, okay, those of you who are still on these older devices, are you ready to switch yet? Or do you want to keep using it? And then when they're ready, they come to us and let us know. And we, we swap it out. And we also have a process too, where, you know, to help also ease that transition. We know since everybody's using laptops, Mm -hmm. they're also using that for some personal use too. And we don't really advocate that they should be doing that, but we also understand that that's the reality and we don't really have a, a super you know, heavy hand stance against it. Like whatever, we respect them as adults. We trust that they're going to use things appropriately. But that also, I think is one of the scare factors in moving away from a Mac is that that's also what they're comfortable using for their personal needs and they don't want to lose that. So we built into part of our refresh process is this is a five-year-old MacBook, five-year, well, eight years old at this point now, because we still have some people using them. We're going to surplus it anyway. If you would like to purchase it to become a personal device as, as part of our disposal process, 
you still have your personal device that you're comfortable with, but now you have the Chrome OS device as your district device to use. Uh, and that has also been something that has helped ease that transition for people. But the biggest thing that has probably helped us all along is that when we made that transition to Macs, we told them we're not providing Office on these Macs, right? <laughs> Google, or Google, well, it was, what was it? I guess it was Google Apps for Education at the time. Mm-hmm. That is our district standard productivity platform. So that's that's what we're using, regardless of what device you want to use. And, and I'll say that to us, that was one of the strengths of Google is that it didn't matter mm-hmm. what device you were on, you were getting that same interface, you could get that same collaboration with other people. So, so we said, okay, if you want a MacBook, fine, but we're using Google. So they could switch to a new device without it being a dramatic change for the applications that they were using. And I think that was something that made it a little easier too. Oh, that's interesting for sure. I know I'm suddenly writing notes because I've got some 10-year-old Mac users in one, one school <laughs> specifically, and I might get them some really fancy Chromebooks to see if I can pull them off of them. And it was been, it's been the same thing. When you're ready, we have this wonderful Lenovo ThinkPad for you when you're ready. And four and five years have gone by. <laughs> <laughs> we do also remind them though, say, hey, you know, we're, we're not fixing these Macs anymore. So whenever you're ready and comfortable, that's fine. But just keep in mind, like if something happens unexpectedly, Mm-hmm. This is what you're going to get. Like we're mm-hmm. not we're not going to be able to repair or replace that thing with another Mac. So make sure you're saving your stuff in Google Drive. We don't want you losing your files if mm-hmm. if the unexpected happens. Just get some Chromebooks and those Apple stickers and slap them on the back. <laughs> oh, so funny. That's great though. I mean, I really appreciate your sensitivity to the teachers and how they use the device knowing that it was perhaps something that they were just it was a skill-based issue. They were really comfortable with it. I think there's status associated with Apple devices as well. And that's somewhat part of it is that they feels good to be able to carry around that silver or hopefully no more white ones in the, yeah. <laughs> in the environment. <laughs> we had a few a, of those too when I started. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you as a teacher, like you have very limited time in your day and a change like that, even though it may not make a difference in what applications you're having access to, like just where you're clicking at at the bottom to shut the thing down, like things like that, like having to retrain mm-hmm. your brain on those things, like mm-hmm. that's a disruption. So we, mm-hmm. we, we just, yeah, we want to be sensitive to that as much as we can and, and not be the one to force those disruptions on people, but to try to get them there at a pace that they're comfortable with. So that sounds like a pretty big project. Like what was the time frame to start switching people over? Well, let's see. We've bought those MacBooks in 2014. So 2018, yeah, probably around 2018 or 19 is when we started doing the, mm-hmm. the Chromebooks as an option mm-hmm. for staff as their wow. devices were coming ready to be replaced. That's awesome. All right. You gave me some work to do later today. So thank you very much. I'm kind of excited to think think of the possibilities. I know one of my local colleagues in Arcadia, Scott Bramley, switched all of his classroom devices for teachers over to Chromeboxes. Mm-hmm. So that I thought I was like, wow, that's that's pretty incredible. And I think they also got a Chromebook too. So they had a classroom device, which was kind of cool because as we as we've moved more teachers to laptops, then we have the challenge of the substitute device mm-hmm. problem. So we've had to stock offices with spare Chromebooks and things like that to just be ready because if teachers are going to trainings, then obviously they're taking their classroom device with them. So we've been trying to figure out how to solve that problem. If we have suddenly 20 or 30 teachers out, do we have enough devices to cover the classroom? Because it's no longer paper subplans. Everything is kind of running through Google Classroom and things like that. Well, and yeah, and that's a challenge that, that we face too. I'm sure every district has is it's not only just a matter of providing the device for the sub, but does the sub know how to log in? Does the sub know how to use the tools that the teacher has been using in the class? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that's something that they learn over time, but we've, we've, I think our, our, our stance has really been for teachers, like as much as possible, try to leave sub plans that don't require the sub to use technology. Just they've got a hard enough job as it is coming in and taking over for a class that they may not be familiar with. So as much as you can, if you can, not have them need to use the technology. I mean, the students still can. I mean, if you're using similar mm-hmm. tools with students every day, like you can have those assignments that the sub can get the students going with, but the kids know what yeah. to do. They can do it on their devices with us, the sub needing to have access to technology themselves. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's something now that with COVID and subs having to use technology to substitute for classes while the teachers are out, even though everything's virtual, they've had to use a lot of those technology tools and things that our teachers normally do too. So I think a lot of that training has happened over that time. And there's probably not going to be any going back from that. So how we're providing technology to subs is probably going to be something that we're going to all have to live with moving forward. Mm-hmm. I was just going to add, we're, we're planning because of the challenges we had with subs this year, 
and how much tech was left for them to to work on. We're planning a sub boot camp this summer just for technology. Ooh, awesome. So we're going to do things like this is a projector, this is a document camera, this is how you sign in, this is what Google Classroom is. And some will have some experience, but we're hoping that they'll say yes to more jobs in our district because they feel more comfortable with the tech that we have in the classroom. So we're, we're planning that for August. We're, we're interviewing some of our most frequent um, booked subs on what they saw as challenges in their, in their experiences last year to then design the training around that. All right. Very cool. And so then how, Vince, how do you guys, uh, what is your process just into introducing new technology as we're on this topic? The first thing is if, if there's something that, well, two, I guess, particular avenues for something to start, either it's something that I become exposed to because I hear from another district through site or through a local network that there's something cool that they're doing, hearing it on a podcast, right? Like, oh, that's a cool idea. Maybe that's something we should be doing here. Or there's a teacher who comes to me and says, hey, this is something that I've been exposed to that I think would be really cool. So then it's just a matter of saying, okay, let's see if we can find a couple of adventurous teachers in our district who would like to try this out and kind of be our guinea pigs, so to speak, try it out kind of as a proof of concept. And if it's something that seems like it's working well, that seems like it would pay off, kind of part of the deal is that you're also showing this to other teachers at your school site. And so that we can kind of get their sense too of like, hey, you know, it's working great for me. These are the strengths. These are the weaknesses of this particular thing. And I've also kind of heard from some of my other teachers who've seen it, and these are kind of their thoughts. And then that will kind of help us formulate a plan for, okay, now that we know that this is proven, that this could work, that it kind of solve these problems, then it's just a matter of really think of being transparent and communicating out to, to the rest of the people affected that this is a change that we're going to want to make. This is the timeline that we're working on. This is how it's going to affect you. And just over-prepare and over-communicate so that yeah. there's no surprises. Uh, and that wherever possible that you're building in that, that flexibility so that it doesn't if you can avoid it, that it's not something that's being forced on them, mm -hmm. but that they can come into when they're ready. So kind of as an, as an example, we are currently uh, working on a refresh project for the uh, audiovisual technology in our classrooms at our middle school, mm -hmm. um, because those were put in eight years ago, nine years ago when the school was built. And we want to replace things before it becomes a problem. Right. Once they've lived their useful life, but not so long of a useful life that it's now unreliable. And so th that was just your typical short throw projector mounted on a wall pointing at a whiteboard. Right. Passive display. Teachers can connect to it wirelessly through a Chromecast or an Apple TV. And but it's just a, a display. And so since we're doing this, we really wanted to at least entertain the notion of is this an opportunity for us to bring in something that might give you more tools than what you've had? You know, yes. Could we just replace the projector and be done with it? We can, and that's totally an option, but there's also interactive technology. And is this something that you at the school think would benefit you? So, you know, we started with a small group of teachers. We had a meeting with, um, you know, uh, one of the partners that we were considering who, who had an interactive product that looked promising um, and just kind of walked through what it would look like and, and got their feedback and, and, and they seemed interested. So then the next step was, well, let's get a demo. Let's try it out. And if that seems like it's going well, then it was just a matter of, well, let's, let's check the pulse of the rest of the school and see what everybody wants to do. So the way we did that is I met with every department at the middle school, just, just joined one of the department meetings and just had a kind of a, a short little uh, discussion with them and said, hey, this is the project that we're looking at doing. These are the different options we could consider, right? We could just keep doing what we're doing, or we could look into a, an interactive flat panel or, or non-interactive flat panel, right? Move away from projectors, but still have just a passive display. So it solves some of the problems that projectors have, but isn't a huge change in how you run your classroom. And just in each of those groups, talked through the pros and cons of the different solutions, gave them a feedback opportunity so that they could let us know what their preference was, their first choice and second choice. Did that with every single department and then just looked to see what rose to the top. And you know what we saw was that there was a significant preference for the interactive flat panel approach, even though it was a smaller screen size than what they had been accustomed to with projectors the majority of that group felt like that was something that was going to provide features and benefits that was going to help them in the classroom, give them more options and opportunities than they had in the past and things that might be more engaging to students. And then really it's from there, it's a matter of, well, this sharing out the results. You know, I didn't name people and their choices, mm -hmm. but I, as transparent as possible, I shared that out with the entire group and said, Hey, here's what our process has been. 
here are the results of those polls. And this clearly was the overwhelming winner. So this is what we're going to be doing. And then after that, I, I literally walked around to every classroom to, to kind of get a, a pulse check with the teacher, wow. see what they thought, see what issues they might have. One of the questions was, is it going to be on a, a mobile stand or mounted on a wall? Uh, and so that was one of the questions too. And, and this, the, everybody pretty much wanted, well, the majority of people wanted it to be wall mounted. So it was also talking to teachers and saying, okay, which wall do you want it mounted on? Not mm-hmm. saying it's going to be that wall, but we at least want to see what the preference is so that we can see what is the most common. And then that will be our standard. So we understand that we're not going to please everybody with the solution, mm-hmm. but we want to have a very comprehensive process that gives everybody an opportunity to at least weigh in on it, provide their feedback, and then see what is going to work for the majority of people. And then, you know, that's what we what we go with. So Obviously, I'm happy with the result because I liked the idea of moving to a a panel-based technology instead of projectors because those Mm -hmm. have been very challenging for a lot of our tech support reasons. And I also like the idea of giving them a new tool that's going to maybe be more exciting for kids in the classroom. But I don't want to force that on them because I'm not a teacher. I don't have to live with it every day. They do. So I want to make sure that it's something that they're asking for and that they see the benefits of and that they're weighing in on that instead of me saying, this is what I think you need trust me on this, you know, and and it required a lot of time to do that. And, but I think that's, again, one of the benefits of being a small district is I have those personal relationships with people and I can make the time to be able to go around and and have those interactions. Yes. Uh, And can you just, uh, just share just the importance of just having input from multiple stakeholders in driving your decisions? Oh my gosh. I mean, it's the most important thing. I can't tell you how how much of a difference maker it is when you're trying to make a a large change from how you've used to do things to how you're going to do things. You know, I've talked about a couple of things here. I've talked about this this change to our classroom AV at this one particular school, which hopefully will be a domino effect to our other schools over time. Talked about the change that we made from MacBooks to Chromebooks. I mean, those are all things that I could have made a case at my district level to say, hey. This is going to save us a lot of money. This is going to reduce a lot of support issues. So on paper, on that Google Sheet spreadsheet, right, it makes sense to do this. Mm-hmm. But if we just did that and people felt like it was forced on them and they didn't have a voice in it, there was going to be pushback. And that, was, that would create a domino effect and that would cause problems. That would also cause, I think, distrust in our department, which it just, it can lead to so many issues down the road. So so spending that time up front to confer with people who are impacted by these changes, I think even though it's very easy to look at that and say, oh my gosh, that takes so much time. I don't have the time to do that. Mm-hmm. Making the time to do that, it saves so much time after the fact mm-hmm. with people who, who felt like they didn't have a choice and are now going to fight or have problems or have complaints or, or point at that as the reason why something didn't get done or something couldn't be done. Again, you're not going to please everybody, but but being able to share like this is the process that we used, and this is everybody who collaborated, and this isn't something a decision that was made in a void. Like it had that input, it just it heads off so many problems down the road that become such greater time suckers than just putting in that investment up front. Yeah, and I see the benefits, like you say, doing the time up front rather than spending more time on the back end, because I kind of see that as the previous district I was at and the current district I'm currently at, everybody's looking at AV solutions. So now when we're implementing the class, you see some have different needs as far as elementary teachers need them lower for certain and high school teachers, the kids are taller. So they're blocking the view of the the monitor. So they need Mm -hmm. them mounted. And so we invested in carts. And if we had these conversations with the teachers, we could accommodate it based on their specific needs rather than one size fit all, because it's not going to be good for certain parties or stakeholders. And so I, I see the benefit just from you talking how granular you went down the, the, the chain just to get everybody's input and it made it for a better purchase for you guys. Well, that's the hope. We haven't done it yet. So hopefully it all plays out as, as planned, but, but you're right. Like exactly. That's a very good example. When you've got a project where there's so many variables, there is not a single right solution, but yeah. getting as much feedback as you can to fine tune what that final solution is going to be, is it at least you're getting something that is probably going to work for the most people. The um, yeah. I really love that. I mean, I think my takeaway is anytime we're looking at a big transition or upgrade, 
it, the question is, okay, what features can we add? What differences will come up? Are there places for innovation? Are we just ripping and replacing or there is an opportunity for an upgrade? And then second, I mean, add that chunk of time to the process at the beginning for the discovery phase with, with the teachers or the group that you're designing for. I think that's, that's incredible. Um, I'll do a lot of thinking on that. So thanks for that, Vince. That's, that's just awesome. You're welcome. Transitioning on. So do you work with high school districts in your county on major decisions such as platforms, SISs, or security decisions? I would say that we at least maintain a good relationship with them. And in our district, as much as possible, we try to we try to make decisions and give our students opportunities that are going to have some synergy with what we know that they're going to be doing when they get to the high school. For starters, it's an interesting case here because my previous district was the high school district that our students feed into. So for me to go from Paris High School District to Romaland School District, I kind of felt like I was still still in the same family, so to speak, because I'm, st- I'm still serving the same kids that I was serving before. I'm just serving them at an earlier age. And I have good relationships with a lot of the people who are still working in that district. The person who became the director uh, in Paris after I left was someone, someone that I had worked with while I was there. So, you know, we still are able to correspond. So when he's doing something cool, I can very easily connect with him and find out the details of it and vice versa. So, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that it's at the level where Paris is using this student information system. So we need to be using that student information system too. Every district, I think, has its unique needs and challenges, especially when you're a smaller district and you have limited resources to support those things. But I think where things are student-facing, and things that are going to impact what they see when they leave us. Those are definitely the things where we are very considerate of what Paris is doing. You know, if they're using Chromebooks and they're a Google district. So that was something that we considered when we were talking about what we wanted our ecosystem to look like eight years ago. We looked at Apple. We looked at, at Google. We looked at whatever Microsoft's package was called at the time. I think that was pre-Office 365. And we had teachers and everybody involved in that. But one of the things we did talk about was when our students leave us, this is where the majority of them are going to go. Yeah. This is what they're using. Is that something that we want to consider? And, and ultimately, we did feel like that was you know, something that was a, a, an important factor that influenced our decision. That's good. So, so far, this has been an amazing conversation. We've learned about your background. We've learned about some really cool projects that you're working on. As we start to wrap up our episode, I think we have a few questions just that are just thinking about trends and what's in the future. And you know, maybe if you were in charge of the world, what would you like to see? So oh. up first, um, what would you say is the most exciting thing happening in ed tech right now? For me, I think it's just the normalization of technology that one of the benefits, I think, of COVID and the sh- sudden shift that we had to make to sending students home and having to provide technology for students at home. And I, and I, I know that that was a struggle for so many districts. We, we were very lucky in that we were already making that change before that happened. So we had it easier than most. And I know that was a challenge, but I think the benefit of that is that forced a lot of districts to make that jump that they may have been reluctant to do previous and are now seeing, hopefully, the instructional benefits that having access to technology in the classroom brings. And having that be a normal thing in our school districts, just like, I don't care what school and what state in this country you go to, like a parent expects that that school is going to have textbooks, mm-hmm. that school is going to have papers and pencils or, you know, crayons and lower grade levels, right? Like those are assumptions that we make when we go to school. I think that we're getting to a point now where a certain level of technology is really just an expectation and a part of the normal instructional environment, which I think is fantastic because that really now shifts the conversation away from, should we be providing this technology and what is the benefit of it? It's like, no, that's, of course, that's something we're doing. That is a normal thing. We're all doing it. Let's move beyond debating the merits of that. And now we can really dive into what are the things that we can do now. Mm-hmm. Now we can focus on building people's practice, their instructional practice and their comfortability with the technology and being able to expose them to new ways to teach students using the technology as a foundation to do things differently. That's going to you know, foster more collaboration between students. That's going to give them maybe more, more avenues to be able to complete assignments that will help the knowledge stick better because we all know that different students learn best in different ways. When we're asking them all to do the same thing, that's going to work great for some kids, but that's going to cause other kids to struggle. With technology, now you have the tools to be able to alter that learning so that kids have different ways of completing the task that maybe works best for them that is still going to achieve the lesson objective. 
the first step to that was just getting the technology into the classroom. And this has helped us overcome that hurdle. So I'm just super excited about that, really. Mm-hmm. And are your staff more so embracing technology as as a result of being propelled into it from the pandemic and are being thrust into it? So are they now embrace, embracing it or are they going backwards, just seeing the importance of it at this point in time. I mentioned earlier, we were kind of in a unique position in that we had already made a shift to classroom being a normal part of classroom life for us. So beginning eight years ago, when we made that change with our technology for staff, part of that was that we developed the classroom standard for all of our schools. Every classroom in our district was getting a certain level of technology that was appropriate for the grade level and the need of that class. So our, at the time it was our K through two classes were getting, I think it was a, an iPad at a three to one or a two to one ratio. And eventually over time that shifted to Chromebooks. Our third through fifth, we're getting one-to-one Chromebooks to be in class. And our sixth through eight at our middle school, we're getting Chromebooks to take home. Like every class at every school got that. And that was something that the district was funding. So the schools were not expected to, to make that happen. And then we, we also provide the projectors and stuff like that. That became a district funded classroom standard. So by providing that foundation, that was allowing our teachers to get over that hump. So, so with COVID, I don't think we had a, the same challenge that most districts probably experienced mm-hmm. in their teachers having to adapt to just having to use the technology. For them, it was really more, how are we adjusting the things that we were used to doing with our kids in class to now doing it in a virtual environment and using, you know, Google Meet or Zoom or what have you to do that. That that was a challenge for us to be sure. But now that we're back, I think our challenge has just been trying to move that practice back to where it was before we went virtual, you know, because before we went virtual, I think our teachers and our schools were really making great headway in using collaborative learning processes for things that were appropriate to do so for, like I mentioned earlier, like giving kids different ways to do things and finding ways to use technology to foster creativity and be a little more exciting and engaging for kids and not just as a replacement for things that they had to doing. And I'm not saying that every classroom was perfect at that, but we definitely were headed down the right road. And one of the things that we've seen with returning from COVID is that everybody just kind of got used to operating in this virtual environment where every kid kind of was doing the same thing and they were using applications. So it's, it's become much more, I think, basic in the use of technology on the whole, mm-hmm. you know, we see a lot of things where kids, their technology exposure is just, we're all using this program now, and now we're all using this program. So I, I think that that's our challenge is that we just have some work to do in, in, in reintroducing just the idea of, of using the technology in a different way than just to replace the things that you had been used to doing in person. That's great. Thank you. So lastly, if you could sit down and chat with the secretary of education, what would you talk about and why? You know, really, I think one thing that, I mean, it was an issue before the pandemic, but I think it really, really brought it to light was the need for internet access to be a right, not a privilege in our country. There's, There's too many areas in our country that are underserved in that area. And even in our district, in small Southern California, our small district, we have areas of our district that have no... Yes. No option to get internet access. I and mean, some of them it's due to financial means, but others it's it's just nobody provides service to their area. And two miles away, you've got a neighbor who put it in. So I really think that that's something that as a as a country, we just need to have a significant focus on biting the bullet and making this happen. Like I think as long as we are treating internet as something that the haves can afford and the have-nots just need to make do or find a way. I think that that we as a country are going to stagnate in being able to move forward. I just think having that internet access has become a basic life necessity to pay your bills, to apply for jobs, to learn, like to have access to the worldwide knowledge that the internet brings. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to find a way to get that out there in the same way that back in the early 20th century, like, well, mid 20th century, we made it an important thing to get cities and towns interconnected with freeways. Like we as a state and as a country, we bit the bullet and said, this is important to develop that infrastructure. We're going to build out these freeways to get everybody connected. I think we now need to do the same thing with, you know, with the digital highway, that that needs to be something that we need to say, this is important, even though there's going to be houses out on a hill in the middle of a field where it's going to be difficult. We need to find a way to connect them. Like if we can get electricity somewhere, we should be able to get internet 
out to them mm -hmm. because otherwise we are effectively cutting that person off from the world. How are they supposed to have a voice in our society if they don't have the same access that everybody else does? So to me, that is the most critical thing that we need to do. It's really good. Thank you so much. Don't ask me how. <laughs> I'm just I mean, the idea you just guy. You just created the pathway. If there's electricity, you can do it. Like throwing at a conduit in. We got this. <laughs> they should always be putting an extra conduit, right? That's the law. Of Rule number one of construction. Why do one when you can do two? And double the size. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Vince, thank you so much for the conversation today. I always love learning from our members of our site community. Jamal and I want to thank our site supporters of this podcast, Andrea Bennett, Tuta Bentitu, Laurel Nava, and Charlie Wolford, along with the site board. Before we close though, Vince, we'd like to give you a minute of airtime for any appreciation, gratitude, or shout outs that you'd like to share. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm going to kind of group this into two categories. I mean, the first one would be here in my district. I mean, I have to, to give a shout out to my superintendent and our cabinet team here. I, I think that in the time that I've been here, that group working together cohesively has been such a huge difference maker in being able to make technology be as cohesive as an important a piece of our instructional platform here as it is. That would not have happened if we didn't have everybody in all their respective areas working together with that same goal in mind. And also thank you to the people at our school sites, our teachers, our administrators who are being accepting of this technology, being willing to learn and to find ways to use it to uh, benefit students. Um, obviously, if they're not willing to use it, then what are we all doing this for? So so thank you to all of them. And of course, to our support staff for, for keeping it all going, because without them, really things break down. Uh, the other category I want to thank is, is just site. I mean, I can't imagine I would have even found this role or be as successful as I may have been here if it hadn't been for the connections that I have made through site and people in, in the near, districts nearby that site facilitates through its regional groups and really the site CTO mentor program. I mean, that really did open my eyes to what this role should be doing. And if it hadn't been for that, I do not feel like I would have been prepared to do any of the things that I have been able to be a part of in this district. So, so I think that's everybody. <laughs> awesome. All right. So we're going to close out with our, would you rather? So this is what I've thought for you. Okay. So would you rather have stable funding for your tech budget for the next 10 years with an inflation factor? So as things get more expensive, you know, you're never worrying about all the basic needs for your district, or would you rather have a network that has complete redundancy, no single point of failure? Ooh, I got to say probably the funding question, right? That because with that funding question, you can afford to do the other thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> Fine. I accept your loophole. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I'm good at finding loopholes. <laughs> fantastic. Thank you so much, Vince. Thanks, Jamal. It's been a wonderful hour spending time with both of you. Thank you, everyone. It's been so fun to be here. <laughs>